Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Health Unchained, a place where you can listen to the future of our new healthcare infrastructure slowly being built. If you're new to the healthcare blockchain space, you should check out the show notes for a link to a Udemy course for non-technical healthcare professionals. Don't hesitate to sign up. There is real value in understanding blockchain's potential impact in healthcare. Use my special discount promo code DOGUM2019. It's my last name, D-O-G-U-M, 2019, for a 75% off discount. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to Robert Miller's weekly newsletter, Beyond Blocks, you really should. It highlights the top blockchain and healthcare stories every week. I appreciate Bert's involvement in the space and his activity in the Health Unchained Telegram community. A link to the newsletter is in the show notes as well. I really enjoyed speaking to Cyrus Magul on today's episode. I think his breadth of technology and leadership experience internationally greatly supports his newest venture, Health Comics, or currently called HCX Pay. Cyrus has a bachelor's in psychology and a master's in applied mathematics. He also has a certificate in international security from George Washington University. He's been involved with developing technology solutions for IBM, Deloitte, Citibank, among others. I really enjoyed speaking with him and appreciate the insight he shared about the healthcare insurance systems. I hope you all enjoy this episode. The Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Cyrus Magul. Cyrus has led the development of many technology companies and has worked at the blockchain incubator at Fidelity Investments in Boston. In 2014, he started Point Nurse to connect patients and nurses on a virtual platform. In 2017, he founded Health Combix, a next-generation platform that intends to deploy autonomous business models powering financial, insurance, and healthcare solutions for unprecedented human condition improvement. Cyrus, welcome to the show, and please share any additional context to set the stage for this conversation. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. And I've been listening to your podcast and have enjoyed many of them. Thank you. No, I think you, did, you summed it up right. I, I began my um, foray in the healthcare in 2014 with Point Nurse. Prior to that, I had never uh, been involved with um, healthcare as a professional. And um, it was a journey that uh, I was a little skeptical of starting, but decided to to jump in the water and see where it would take me. And, uh, and that's what, how I got into healthcare. But prior to healthcare, I was a startup entrepreneur and uh, got involved with several startup companies, uh, two of which I, I ran and, and sold over the years. And Can you tell me the, a little bit about those companies? Sh- sure. Um, they're internet companies. And when the internet was just getting going, Back in the mid to late 90s, I saw an opportunity to basically solve some black box problems in the payment industry. Uh, Back then when websites were just being developed by companies, uh, payment processing was kind of a black box for for many people. And I saw that as immediate problem. So I took a small team and we began developing the very early payment processing um, capabilities for websites. Uh, securing the transactions, doing order management, and building gateways into the prominent uh, payment processes like Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. Uh, Began competing with uh, many other startups who got into the payment space, including PayPal, 
and uh, many companies that are no longer uh, in the game. Uh, Amazon at the time was primarily a retailer, uh, but we knew that they would become uh, big in the payment space as well as they started aggregating merchants. I um, ran a company. We had several thousand uh, software developers as our customers. Uh, it was called Digibuy, and we focused on payments for uh, digital goods, software, music, art, etc. Um, grew that, and uh, we were publishing several hundred million dollars a year of uh, processing volume. And in 1999, 2000, I sold that to a major competitor, a company called Digital River. Digital River and I then grew that business for another two years together. And um, I left the company uh, after seven years of, of running that business. I um, That was in 2001. After 2001, I took several years off, uh, went back to school, decided to do something totally different and focused on uh, international security and foreign policy. And I studied at George Washington University. It was just an interest I always had. And after seven years working 80 hours a week in tech, I decided to take a couple of years off, you know, rekindle my relationship with my family and uh, well do something totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was just after uh, 9-11 had occurred that I was decided to go and study international security and at the end of 2003, one of my professors at George Washington University invited me to uh, to go to uh, Iraq and to be a negotiator and an advisor. And uh, I decided in October 2003 to uh, to go to Iraq with the uh, Department of Defense. So I was actually technically employed by the State Department, but uh, my my command was the DoD and spent several months in uh, Baghdad doing a variety of, I want to call it liaison work with the oil ministry there. Got involved with some pretty interesting projects and basically moving control uh, of these, con they were called oil for food contracts, away from uh, the oil ministry control to the U.S. control at the time. So it was wow. a lot of inter interfacing with all kinds of folks who were involved with the oil ministry, Syrians, uh, Russians, Chinese, uh, Americans, Italians. Uh, That's quite an opportunity. How did you? Yeah. So at all during all this time, were you ever interested in healthcare at all? Or was it just sort of like, a, how did you get into it? Well, actually, uh, my ex-wife was a physician. Okay. And so uh, she had a big influence on me because I would hear when she came home every night, all the, the problems and issues with healthcare. In the back of my mind, actually, when after I sold my first company, uh, I was going to make an investment actually in a home health business in Florida uh, after that. So I came very close to actually buying a home health business um, back in, it was when I got back from a little later, it was back in 2005, 2006, I almost purchased a home health business. And I knew I wanted to be in the senior living and, you know, sort of the the home nursing space in some fashion. Um, and so that's, you know, so what happened after I got back from uh, Baghdad, I, um, one of my competitors uh, in the payment processing space was based in the United Kingdom and he was running a, a fledgling uh, payment processing company that I had licensed some technology to from the first company. And he called me up when I got back from Baghdad and said, this is in 2004, and said, hey, how would you like to, to help me run this business? So I I flew to the UK and I spent two years there helping him uh, build his business up and grow revenues. And he became one of the leading uh, payment internet payment processing companies in Eastern Europe and Russia. So I got a big influence there. And we were doing more foreign currency exchange payment processing. So it was a very complex system we built. And then we ended up selling that company as well. And in 2005, um, I had a non-compete with the company we sold the business to, so I couldn't get back into the um, payment processing space. And that's when someone said, hey, are you interested in maybe buying a healthcare business? And I met with a couple potential uh, sellers of um, home health companies through an M&A advisor. And I uh, flew to Florida, and the other place was in Georgia. And learned to quit the business very quickly. 
anyway, um, at that time, I ended up getting a divorce, so I couldn't go after or pursue any businesses for a few years because of the divorce and decided to put that on the back burner. So after that, um, I actually started doing consulting work uh, for both startups and enterprises who were interested in new product development uh, and building either uh, products or businesses that were internet-based. So I took my startup experience in the internet and I applied it uh, to uh, consulting. And uh, I spent several years uh, consulting for companies through about 2013. The last company, startup company, I was a president of a company in Manhattan and uh, it was in the video space and I uh, helped launch a video platform and that's when I became interested in video and healthcare. I was invited uh, to advise a company in Nashville in 2013. So I packed my bags and I left Manhattan and uh, drove to uh, Nashville. And that's when I became interested in healthcare and came up with the idea of uh, building a platform that was nurse practitioner centric versus physician centric. And uh, the value proposition is uh, what Point Nurse is uh, to bring uh, uh, nurse practitioners at a much lower cost point to uh, primary care and, uh, and really go to large payers who are seeking um, a lower cost option for uh, primary care via a video visit. That's and quite that's a diverse like, set of experiences you have, and I think that's truly immensely valuable as you navigate the healthcare industry because it's so um, you know, also diverse in how it functions. And I know that you're, you know, at this moment, extremely interested in insurance and looking at financial yes. markets and trying to understand how to make that whole system better. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you, if you could kind of just share some of the history about health insurance in the United States and how that started and, and um, your thoughts there. Sure. Um, so when I got into telemedicine and started learning about reimbursement and insurance. And uh, I began to dig deeper and to try to really understand sort of the origins of insurance. And um, I began researching kind of back to the turn of the century or the turn of the 20th century, where insurance was uh, at the time, there was really no medical expense insurance. Uh, Back in the uh, early 1900s, it was predominantly accident insurance at the time. And um, at the time, uh, physicians uh, and doctors were very much opposed to the concept of insurance. Hmm. And uh, during uh, the depression, uh, the Social Security Administration began uh, to research uh, social insurance. As you know, things are not good uh, in our country at that time. So in addition to looking at uh, compensation insurance, they began looking at health insurance. And uh, at that time, uh, the, very, the very first sign of um, employee-sponsored health care was really disability insurance for lost wages. And that was some of the, it was actually a, a company in Massachusetts that actually built one of the very first uh, compensation uh, loss uh, programs uh, or disability insurance. So there was started, there was some interest there early on from companies to uh, provide lost wages insurance. And then over time, during the depression, uh, the government began looking at social insurance and they were uh, being influenced by uh, what was going on or they were studying, they put together a committee, uh, the committee for uh, medical cost uh, insurance, uh, which ended up becoming the, um, the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and wow. at that time, they were interested in protecting the, uh, the citizens, especially those who could not afford to see a doctor because prior to insurance, it was all fee for service at the time. And so doctors wouldn't take, uh, or very few would take uh, those who couldn't uh, afford it. And so the government was looking for a replacement uh, solution and so during the Roosevelt administration, uh, that's when the research began and the politics began. And there was a lot of confrontation uh, between uh, the AMA at the time and uh, the government because the AMA was opposed to anything that would institutionalize medicine at the time. It was very much uh, 
a one practitioner solo business mentality and still is today in many ways. And MA, and MA so, is the American Medical Association, right? Yes, the MA is Medical Association. Uh, and so there was a lot of politics going on at the time uh, between the AMA and the government. There was a fight, basically. They did not want there to be uh, any type of uh, insurance, really. They actually saw uh, insurance as an evil. And that's how they would position it uh, in the eyes of uh, uh, the, the electorate. And so there was this fierce battle going on between uh, the government and uh, the AMA uh, in the late 20s, early 30s. The government had commissioned uh, some medical economists at the time. There was a group, about six or seven of them, that began to really study this, this question. And, uh, and because of politics and because they were trying to tie uh, health insurance into Social Security, uh, they um, would always back off of uh, adding any type of uh, government-sanctioned uh, health care uh, because they didn't. They wanted the other parts of Social Security uh, legislation to, to get passed. So that kind of went back and forth for several years. At the same time, private uh, insurance uh, or employer-sponsored insurance began to emerge. So in the in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, the uh, war labor board mm-hmm. uh, capped uh, salaries. It was a fierce competition for employees in the United States from companies. And one of the things they did exempt, though, was fringe benefits. So in the 40s and 50s, what empl- that's when uh, employer-sponsored uh, health care plans really grew. Uh, significantly because uh, they were able to offer uh, employees uh, fringe benefit packages that were not capped by the uh, war board. So that's kind of interesting how that was really when uh, employer-sponsored healthcare plans spiked. It went from 700,000 to millions of uh, employees had uh, been uh, given these uh, health insurance uh, benefits. Uh, benefits at the time. So mm-hmm. it was because of the war and the dearth of employees that led to uh, the growth and uh, employer-sponsored plans. And then it grew from there. And then at the same time, they were finally able to uh, pass uh, basically uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, in, the, in the government. And, the, and, they, and that's because uh, they actually eventually uh, It was Roosevelt, maybe, that brought in the AMA finally and made them a part of a task force. And that seemed to quell a lot of their concerns because early on they did not include the physicians in this health insurance research that they were doing. So that's that's kind of obvious mistake not to include the medical um, association. Yeah, it was. But and they were now it was a nasty fight. I feel like that's uh, the, happening these days. Fast forward, I feel like I know a lot of the medical associations I are know. included in the conversations with insurance and Medicaid and Medicare and how and who be, should be paying for um, you know the society's health care needs. Well, it's it, one of the, the, the it's a cultural issue actually because doctors have always seen themselves as solo operators, you know, and they were always in charge. And, um, and and that was true then, and it's true now. I think, for the most part, uh, they don't uh, believe in institutionalized medicine. At the end of the day, that's maybe some of the newer doctors and the newer generations do. But for the most part, the core DNA. If you look at the AMA, you're talking about older gentlemen who've been around. You know, during the early days, they fought insurance, and they still do tooth and nail today for a variety of reasons. And I'm no fan of insurance. Uh, companies, uh, to be honest with you, but uh, it's a cultural thing, I think. And I, when I when I see doctor entrepreneurs out there, and I see them, you know, a lot of them are very independent. They believe in what they're doing. They're very bright, very intelligent. They, but but really, there's a solo practitioner mentality among many of them. And they do not want uh, healthcare to be institutionalized, and so, so that's kind of interesting. So, so you mentioned that you don't believe in insurance. Um, what do you mean? Insurance, com- insurance, insurance companies. Com- okay. Yeah, insurance okay. companies. I don't believe in. I, I, I do believe in, in insuring and risk sharing, but not the way it's done today. Okay, that's fair. And um, if you think about the way insurance was handled and claims were handled back then, there was a lot less information and data to pull from. So it was harder to 
use predictive models for risk, you know, to calculate your risk. As technology mm-hmm. has gotten better and we've been able to collect more different data points, you know, we've done a better job at specifying how much money should a specific procedure cost and in the future and how do you prevent these things. So I, I think we're doing, we're trying to do a better job calculating these models. Um, but I know you've written about parametric insurance and I think that mm-hmm. I'd like you to kind of explain to the audience what that is and how that's evolving. Sure. Uh, so insurance a long time ago was uh, people getting together as a community and uh, basically sharing uh, in the cost of the community members uh, any kind of risk. And there was no insurance companies uh, way back when. It was really a community, people getting together, merchants or uh, any type of affinity group uh, to insure themselves. Um, but there's limitations to that, or there was then limitations in that if you don't have scale efficiencies, it's very hard uh, without risk diversification to uh, make it work, uh, especially when there's some sort of catastrophe or uh, you end up losing and going bankrupt or insolvent. Um, you need to be so big enough to manage or to handle need, all that potential yeah, huge costs, right? You need to be huge. And that's where insurance companies came in is they could create that scale. Um, but there was a there's a cost to that, and it's a cost in both developed economies and undeveloped economies. And that cost is the cost of agency and uh, transparency. You know, they insurance companies are managing our money. You know, and they decide at the end of the day which claims get paid, and they decide how the money's invested, and they decide uh, you know what money goes to the shareholders of the company. That's our money. That's not their money. So they're effectively an agent. And because they're an agent and because there's all kinds of potential malfeasance, both intentional and unintentional, that's where regulators have to step in. And and there's a huge cost associated with um, managing that regulation. And that cost is passed on to to you, uh, the insured. Now, McKinsey did a study in 2015, and they show basically the cost the frictional cost in a healthcare system costs around 36 to 40 cents of every dollar you pay. So every dollar you pay in a premium, uh, 40 cents of that is going to frictional cost, which is a result of the lack of transparency and a result of agency. And there's something, this new technology that we talk about really does well with is transparency and agency. And I like to think that if you could create a new type of organization where you don't have those frictional costs or you at least have those frictional costs, then that money can go back to to you, either paying out more claims or paying less premiums. Right, so, and you know, speaking of this new technology, I believe you're referring to blockchain uh, or distributed ledger technology. That's correct. And um, how did you first hear about uh, blockchain in general? Um, when I was when I left Manhattan back in 2013, and I was on my way to Nashville, I stopped off at a vegan retreat in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time and a good place. And um, I was reading uh, a payments magazine uh, because I was interested in the payment space, and that's when I first learned about Bitcoin. So I had my laptop in this vegan retreat and I was sitting there and I said, I'm going to do some research. So that's when I began to, to investigate Bitcoin and actually made my first purchase of Bitcoin um, was then. And, uh, and then I, be- I read the white paper and then, uh, the- and then at the time I was starting Point Nurse. And so I began thinking about all the potential data, privacy and security issues with healthcare data. And I began to kind of mix the two or conflate the two together. And so uh, I would say 2013 was when I really uh, began to kind of put this all together. So at that point, when you talk about um, this technology helping to increase transparency, you're talking about the data points that insurance companies would like to have when certain uh, accidents or um, health needs are required Uh, for a patient? So one of the things I'm looking at is... um, 
So we know this is a multi-year, multi-generation um, evolution, blockchain and distributed ledger. This is not going to happen in months. No. This is going to happen over the course of years. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone knows that, um, or they should. So what I'm looking at as a businessman is, you know, how can I uh, create uh, a revenue generating profitable business uh, given that long horizon? And so when I look at the maturity of blockchain and all the different uh, technologies around it, I say, what, what's the most practical? What, what kind of use cases can bear fruit uh, in the next 12, 24 months? And um, I believe uh, as it relates to the exchange of value is where you'll see uh, production use cases and you're going to see them emerge in the next year or two. So for me, when I look at insurance and healthcare, what I'm looking at is the exchange of value between the insured and the insurer. And how can I use decentralized technology to improve that as well as the agency problem and the transparency problem? So if you look at what an insurance company do, does, they do three things basically. They do risk assessment, claim assessment, and investment management. The risk assessment and the claim assessment um, doesn't require a lot of management. It's expertise, it's individuals, it's, it's actuaries, it's uh, claim adjusters um, who uh, will look at data and make a decision. Right. Um, and so when I look at an insurance company, I see a lot of you know, uh, scaling costs, uh, coordination costs associated with it that could be taken out. So one of the things I'm looking at is in addition to risk assessment, claim assessment, and uh, investment management, they pool your money. They're basically a pooling service. And if there's one thing um, something like smart contracts can do very well is pool money into one secure pool. And so all of a sudden now you think about you know, what this insurance company does is they're a trust company basically. We entrust them with our premium dollars, which sit in their coffers. Well, if the smart contract can replace the trust factor or the trust aspect of running an insurance company, then you begin to question, well, why is an insurance company needed? Um, so what I'm looking at is building um, a capability which will allow insureds to put money into a pool, will allow... Uh, risk assessors to assess risk, depending on the type of risk that's being assessed, and then insureds and the community folks to act as claim uh, assessors. So all of a sudden, now, if you think about the old mutual insurance companies, you can begin to see an opportunity where you can bring a peer-to-peer -peer solution where you have actuaries, claim adjusters, insureds, all working together in a community to run an insurance product. So we see the smart contract and the pooled resources being managed by the network and not an insurance company. And if you can break down the components of an insurance company, then all of a sudden you can build a community of folks that can work together to run their own insurance product. And so that's kind of what we're working on. So, and you've started Health Convicts uh, for this, you know, primary reason. Um, yes. What is your vision for the company? And uh, it sounds like I understand why you started it now, and I can kind of understand how blockchain definitely could be, you know, insurance is a good use case for blockchain technology. But what's your vision um, moving forward? The vision is to be able to create a new type of uh, organization which can replace. Uh, both insurance companies uh, and healthcare companies today. It's an autonomous organization. So instead of people or boards deciding, it'll be running itself in a way without. In a way, it would, it, would, it would be. I like to use the term semi autonomous because mm -hmm. I don't believe there's ever a completely autonomous, not in healthcare at least. I don't see that as being completely autonomous, but I do see a great deal of what's um, manual today being replaced uh, by um, autonomous technology. And that's kind of our vision is, can we build a leaner, better, 
insurance companies. You know, the problem today in capitalism is you have monopolies and monopolies don't work well in capitalism. And we have monopolies today in the insurance industry. And that's a problem. And we're starting to see that today in technology and social technology space. Um, I'm a capitalist uh, at heart, but you know, you can't have it both ways. Uh, monopolies don't work and socialism doesn't work. So to me, those two uh, are, are bad, bad. And so what we're looking for is an alternative uh, system there to, to replace uh, some of the larger uh, um, sure. insurance companies. Uh, can you share some of your company partners or major customers at the moment? Um, I can tell you right now that we have three, um, I'll call them joint ventures that are under construction. And I can tell you that um, two of them are outside the United States and one's inside the United States. All three are have their fingers in insurance. And so since you're, you know, working internationally and I did see that, um, you know, the company is actually based in the country of Belize. So I was curious to know what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of basing your company in, in the yeah. Outside the U.S.? Yep. Yeah. So um, there's more than one company. Uh, the company that uh, the Health Convicts Limited is based in Belize for, for one reason primarily, which is uh, we launched a uh, privacy network. Uh, and that privacy network uh, has a token associated with it. And to avoid any potential issues or problems uh, with the U.S., uh, the SEC here in the U.S., we decided it would be best to just do that outside the United States just to avoid all potential problems. Mm -hmm. um, the insurance company that we're uh, working on right now will be a U.S. based company. And, um, and so what we're doing is we're basically, as a part of a joint venture, creating a new entity for that. I see. Can you kind of describe a little bit in more detail what your technology stack is? Sure. So right now, uh, everything we're prototyping with utilizes uh, Ethereum and some Ethereum ecosystem uh, products. Um, our privacy network is a uh, derivative of Monero. And so we basically uh, hacked uh, a Monero uh, derivative and made some modifications to it and launched that. Um, we're not we're also looking at um, potentially some private networks uh, that we will build uh, just because of the regulatory environment here in the U.S. And we're looking at Quorum and we're also looking at uh, Pantheon uh, to build out those private networks versus uh, being on the main net. Our, our intention early on is to create um, a national uh, private insurance network, uh, which will, uh, which we can open up, you know, at the right time. It'll be a hybrid, private, uh, public network. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. J.P. Morgan has recently announced its plan to acquire Instamed, a 15-year-old medical payments technology firm that makes paying for a hospital bill easier by using an Instamed app. According to various sources, this move is unrelated to operations at Haven, the nonprofit healthcare business formed by J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon. In spring of 2019, Instamed introduced a blockchain prototype for revenue cycle transactions and payments. Instamed's platform connects consumers, providers, and payers, and it's focusing on eliminating paper, improving financial experience, and reducing the cost to collecting payments. The acquisition is reported to be over a whopping $500 million. Bill Marvin, CEO and co-founder of Instamed, said, Blockchain is something we're both passionate about when speaking about the sale to J.P. Morgan. Instamed will continue its operations in Philadelphia and Newport Beach, California. Well, you know, I'm excited to see how this will all play out and interested in how it will impact the overall industry and if it will actually create more interest in blockchain technology among healthcare stakeholders. You can find a link to the article in the show notes. And now back to the show with Cyrus Magul from HCX Pay. So what's the, what does a typical customer experience look like then if I wanted to participate in your 
uh, network, insurance network, and I, you know, work at a company, let's say mid-sized company, would the company have to have a contract with Health Comics or can I individually go out and uh, create an insurance? Sure. So um, we can build the network one of two ways we can um, for you. Think of um, a smart contract network where we can have multi-tenants and each tenant can become their own insurance community. So if you're working for a large company, say, I don't know, Pfizer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Pfizer, uh, we would, uh, a whole entire smart contract system would be provisioned for Pfizer. I see. And, and then that system allows um, their employees to become members of a quorum or mutual. And then that mutual, uh, and then, so you have members in there and then you can hire your own actuaries to come in. And so, and you can hire your own claim adjusters, and then you can manage your own pool uh, within that smart contract system. And one of the things which is great is you can eliminate a lot of the regulatory costs, which is a large uh, portion of that 36 cents by uh, providing complete transparency to the regulators of your capital reserves and what you're doing with the money. So there's a lot of the legal and regulatory costs that drop out of the system with the system. So the insurer can do it, or if you're an affinity group, say you're a large group of uh, truck drivers or something like that, then the truck drivers could create their own uh, truck driving mutual. And what would happen is they would sign up, um, they would have uh, membership into this community, and all their money would be put into a smart contract pool. And that pool would be visible to everyone in the um in the network, in your network, and then the regulators in your state could have access and see uh, there. So you'd meet all your reporting requirements without there having to be a large staff of people to uh, to do the um, reporting. How would one agree to the reimbursement rules that are set up for the, the um, contracts? Sure. So during when you have your actuaries and you, you're setting up your product, that's when you can set what the reimbursements will be. So you would work that together as a group so you could create a governance and a voting system. So anyone who's a part of the mutual could actually vote on and and come to an agreement. You can have a governing board as well so that the governing board who might have some experts on there can uh, offer up the proposals and then have the community vote on that proposal. So right now, most people have, you know, very few options when they're choosing their insurance plans for the re- for the year. They can mm-hmm. you know, go with a PPO or um, choose some sort of health, you know, health savings account and pay a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Do you envision there being more options for people and, and different types of contracts and rules set up so you can be more flexible in what you want and cater what you need to uh, your contract? Sure, I, 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 I think the, the smart consumer who really wants to see where his money's going, and rather than having an adversarial relationship with an insurer, have a relationship with a community of people where you're not um, fighting with the insurer. You, you have complete transparency of what the rules are and what the payouts are. And you can see where your money and how it's being used. I think the consumers who want to pay less money and also rather than it going to the shareholders, the profits of the money that's being invested, that money can ultimately go back to you as a uh, holder or a policy holder in the uh, in the mutual. And how do you envision payouts working, like reimbursements? Would it be the same? Well, that's, as- where, param- well, that's where parametric uh, insurance comes in. Yeah. And... Um, and and it's kind of a misnomer because parametric insurance, in my view, and based on some court rulings in the U.S., is technically probably not insurance. It's probably a, der- a derivative or a financial instrument. The, the rule is basically ins- an insurance contract is when there is a, a loss that's being paid out and there's an assessment of a loss. So if you have a full loss and and you have an assessor that goes there and evaluates your situation and tallies up the total cost, $1,000, $10,000, that's an insurance contract. There's a guarantee that we're going to pay exactly 
what is owed. In a parametric, there's a fixed amount agreed upon early on. So, for example, if we could get some measurable, objective information about when a heart attack occurs, maybe there's an implant, then what would happen is in a parametric contract, you would have agreed upon that when a heart attack occurs, you get a fixed amount, $25,000, $50,000, whatever that is. And then that would all that that would be paid out like an option or a contract immediately. When it immediately, it'll whatever it happens, event. it'll trigger the event and it'll go right into your wallet or into your bank account. It doesn't have to be a crypto. And so we see a lot of potential there to move around some of this what they call insurance today, these claims processing, because if you can do it in a fixed basis, then you can eliminate the whole claims processing um, scenario that goes away because you've already agreed to a, a fixed amount to get paid. You don't need to wait a week, 25 days, which I think is the average. That'll chip for, away at that 36 cents as well, right? Exactly. Wasted, wasted costs. Exactly. And so what we're going to do is so we're, we're going to start, you know, I, I wrote an article recently, I know in a travel insurance uh, journal, what we're going to do for proof of concept is we're going to start with very objective type of insurance pro- products before we move to healthcare, and so we're going to start with uh, something as simple as flight delay insurance. When your flight's delayed by more than two hours, you're going to receive three hundred dollars or whatever agreed upon based on a twenty-five dollar payment or something like that. That's something. There's plenty of airline information. We can get that objectively. We can tie that in to trigger a contract. And there's lots of other use cases like I'd that. hate if my uh, flight was delayed one hour and 59 minutes, though. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it is. <laughs> that's, that's the great thing about objective information. You know, yeah. if it's two hours, it's two hours. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's called a basis. Uh, there, there's a basis risk in that you won't get paid out uh, in those scenarios there. Or a scenario, for example, in uh, a wind damage uh, contract where... Basically, if the wind is exceeds 100 miles an hour, that's when you typically would get paid out. Uh, but you don't know how much damage that 100 miles an hour wind is going to do to your home. Right. But you just, I, I just agree on receiving $2,000 or $10,000 or whatever it is you agreed to. Uh, the problem is that damage could be $100,000, and you don't know that. So you, that's what they call basis risk there. So there is some risk associated with that. What they do is they sometimes combine... Uh, these parametric products with indemnity products so that they'll get you a quick payment as soon as possible. And then the claims adjuster will eventually get there, but it might take some time. So it's a way to get you some funding Mm -hmm. started. Uh, And so that's what parametric insurance has been used for uh, to date for the most part. But we're seeing opportunities to maybe turn that into – some other types of products, especially in healthcare. It's really interesting. I was also thinking about life insurance and using parametric. Uh, let's say in yeah. the future you have, you know, a connected device that basically can read your pulse at all times. And, you know, when you're dead, that'll trigger an event and your beneficiaries will get um, your life insurance payouts. Sure. Uh, but that sure, also could be pretty risky too if there's no investigation. So you have to make sure that like, everything is um, kosher. Everyone's very, yeah, exactly, kosher. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of, do you have a product currently available or is this all still in development? No, we have our, our privacy payment uh, product is up and running. Uh, you can use it to exchange uh, uh, tokens with uh, friends. It's uh, being used. We have about 300 uh, users of the network right now. Um, you, can, you can find that at hcxpay.io. And you can use that. So it's a light wallet that we have in place um, that's up and operational. It has been since uh, November. So it's, it just functions as a wallet. Um, it's a, it functions as a currency, a privacy currency. Okay. And it uses Monero type technology. Is it a fork yeah. of Monero or is it? it? It's a fork and a modification okay. of it. So one of the challenges with public networks like Ethereum mainnet is using that to pool insured money opens up a privacy issue there. And yes, I know you're going to have uh, various types of security add-ons to secure that, but at least right now, 
because performance is an issue, um, we can't use a mainnet uh, to pool insurers because they have all kinds of privacy issues. That's the dark side. Um, the bright side is that the regulators can have direct access to uh, the, the funds and can see the contracts and who's receiving what. So there's total transparency for the regulators. So what we're doing right now is trying to build um, a layer, uh, a layer one system where the insureds have privacy when they add to a smart contract uh, funding for healthcare, for example, but the regulators can have access and transparency uh, to the, the pooled um, uh, funds. Right now, uh, none of the privacy stacks um, uh, have smart contract technology built into it. We found one recently, a uh, solution called Neuro, uh, which is a mainnet solution that has uh, both smart contract and privacy working at layer one, and it's pretty fast. Hmm. So, so what we're doing at HCX Pay is we're trying to build a smart contract tech into a privacy uh, layer network, layer one network, and, and that's what we're currently working on. That was the whole reason or vision behind HCX Pay is have a privacy network to um, – to secure and privatize consumer information, but also have a view for the regulators so they can see what's going on with the pooled funds. And that's one of the projects that we're working on right now. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, I think. Um, I'm just curious about, you know, you've probably talked to tons of people and different regulators included and different entrepreneurs, uh, yep. business people. What are some of the biggest barriers to adoption in terms of blockchain technology, specifically in healthcare? In the insurance space, the biggest barriers is you have lots of folks whose livelihoods are at risk. And so because their livelihoods are at risk, uh, they're in no hurry uh, for any type of uh, change. And I'm talking about lawyers, I'm talking about regulators, I'm talking about brokers, I'm talking about the carriers themselves. Um, their focus has been and continues to be, how do we improve the existing system that we have? And, and how do we use a distributed ledger technology to improve this? And I think they're, they're gonna find some improvement, they're just not gonna find a huge amount of improvement with the technology. And if there's something that you could make an edge case for with distributed ledgers in enterprises is when you have more than five or six or seven um, ecosystem partners. Then permissioning using traditional databases becomes an issue. And then blockchain perhaps is a better solution for these multi-player uh, uh, ecosystems. But... Um, it has to, my sense is if you have more than four or five or six, yes. But if you have less than that, then existing systems work fine. Well, even ultimately, you would think that a public or more uh, open network is going to be more accessible by more people and eventually that'll win out. Um, right. Sure, there have been many announcements for alliances in the healthcare, not just in insurance, but just in uh, overall sharing of data, mm -hmm. uh, provider mm -hmm. data, or just even uh, research information. People are trying to make these permissioned networks, building them out. Um, but do you have an opinion on that? Like, is a public better than a private network, or does it really depend on what you're trying to accomplish? I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you know, if you're just building something inside uh, four walls, um, I don't think you need a blockchain. I think a distributed ledger is probably uh, all you really need. Um, if you're trying to be outward facing and um, work with, again, multiple ecosystems, then I think you could justify uh, a blockchain. Uh, I think that's a reach for the most part. The ROIs have been very difficult to, uh, to prove out. Uh, I think for the most part, the ROIs have not been worth it because um, I think a lot of very low value uh, use cases, you just won't get enough adoption to make that work and you need a lot of adoption. Mm -hmm. I think there could be some very high value, low adoption 
use cases that could be interesting and you can make an economic case for, but I haven't seen any yet. How important is community in this space that you're working in? Very important, especially if you're trying to build something uh, in a public uh, network. A community is very critical. And uh, I think that's something that we don't do very well mm-hmm. in the West because we're not community-based. We're, you know, we're, it's a capitalist based. system. Yeah. We're individual-based. We're very much free freedom of you know movement freedom uh, to compete uh, that's very contradictory to community thinking um, I'll give you an example working with some insurance uh, projects in Europe and uh, you know they're very easy with cooperation or cooperation it comes more natural to them uh, whereas in the US everything's hidden you know no one wants to share any information veiled curtains you know, everywhere <laughs> yeah it's like you know, we're very tribal here. You know, we got small yeah. tribes and we don't want big tribes, you know, and, and I get that. that. That's a cultural thing. And I think to a certain extent, you need that for ultimate success because every project, including Bitcoin, started with one or two people. Mm-hmm. And any good idea always starts with one or two people. And then you have to build community to bring it to market. But you can't have a thousand people day one all making decisions or trying to make decisions or to make the, you know, the the final decision to me, it has to start off. It always starts off with a dictator, one person, Mm -hmm. and then it goes to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. And then it diffuses. um, And and, and that's how you're successful. So I, I bring sort of a a balance between um, uh, being a capitalist and being a community organizer. You got to kind of do both and do them well. And that's hard to do. What are some of the things or initiatives you've taken to build your community? What are we doing? Um, first of all, I, I reached out to people around the globe. So you look at my community, it's not US centric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have uh, folks in Europe, folks in Asia who are part of the team. Mm-hmm. And so that's the very first thing I wanted to be very inclusive. Right. And, um, and so from there, um, uh, I think it's easier to build uh, a global sort of uh, group. But in the United States, especially insurance, one of the challenges in insurance is you have 50 jurisdictions yeah. in the United States. There's no federal insurance charter or re- legislation. So that's a challenge right there is how do you bring, you know, a, a solution across, you know, how 50 do you one solution to like, all the different jurisdictions that oh, so you, and, and you got to get licensed, you know, in every state if you're a startup, yeah. or you have to have at least a minimum of fifteen million dollars capital reserve uh, to start off a supply uh, insurer. You know, so is that the actual requirement? Fifteen million to yeah, for a surplus line uh, insurer, it's fifteen million okay. uh, to get out of the box, and then you have to season. Uh, that company for a couple of years, uh, and and then, you know, and then you can. There's a lot of different ways you can head in that direction, but we have some other uh, options. And using captive structures, we can do some things that are rather unique. Captive insurance uh, as a way to uh, scale in the United States, um, and then you have all, all kinds of brokers and advisors out there. So, and you're competing against ultimately at the end of the day, ten very large carriers out there that control uh, the market. And that's, you know, that's, those are the monopolies out there that you have to compete against. Uh, when we were talking about some of the, you know, modeling for insurance and we have like mm-hmm. risk factors that, that, that goes into those models, mm-hmm. what are the most important risk factors for determining one's health or their cost of health insurance in the future? Uh, I'm not. Question, but I yeah, guess an actuary I'm... would know best about that yes and that's the beautiful part about it is you know having the you know the actuaries are experts in modeling and predictive modeling they're the ones who take all the historical data and in the future real-time data and make those kind of forecasts and that's something that you know where blockchain and distributed ledgers will become very important is handling all the real-time data that one day will be made available 
right now, rating systems in the insurance industry are fixed. You have to send your rates to the insurance commission. But in the future, those rates are going to be real time and dynamic. Right. And they're going to change based on you know current data. That's new. I agree and so with that. That, yeah. that, that's I think going that's something that people aren't really taking into account. Like right now, and not at all. we pay for the same thing throughout the entire year. And, and that's helpful in a way because you're able to forecast what you're going to have to pay out. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's also, we're paying usually probably a bit extra than we need to. <laughs> right. We're not doing just exactly. in time insurance. We're doing like just in the last year insurance. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. And that's where we're heading. We're heading in that direction. You can see that with some of the products, you know, the usage based insurance products that are beginning to emerge. Um, that this new technology will enable uh, that type of control, you know, and, and, and self sovereign control of the data. I give you permission to use my real time data. You know, you have to. You have to query the user for that. You have to get that permission. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I think a, a major mistake a lot of companies have made in healthcare is until self-sovereignty is solved uh, and, and identity solved, it's going to be very hard uh, to uh, build some of these applications. And I think that's further out. And it's one of the reasons why I shifted or pivoted more towards insurance because I think you're going to see disruption in the insurance space sooner than you will see in some of the healthcare space, especially in the area of data um, disruption. Do you think we've we've started to enter into a surveillance economy, though? And at that, a point, we won't be able to escape it. Uh, well, that's the whole. You know, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing all these private networks emerge. You know, and I think. Uh, the answer may be yes, and I think you're already seeing evidence of that in other uh, economies, in some of the emerging economies. And so um, I think Are you that's one of the China at all? Are you like looking to be involved in the Chinese market? No, not at this time. Uh, one of our developers is lives in mainland China, mm-hmm. and I know some of the hurdles he has to, to go through uh, just to work with us. He has to use a vpn and uh, and i know he's very careful what he says and does interesting very interesting uh, how you know it's one world but there's so many different rules and different places mm-hmm. to kind of yeah and, and 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 you know when i describe the problems with insurance companies in um in the united states with transparency and agency you know in other economies you have the surveillance issue and then you have corruption as well. You know, where is your money going? Are you ever going to see your premium back? So this solves not only problems for developed uh, economies, it also solves it for corrupt and surveillance because you have the contract, the, the network controlling those funds, not some corrupt official or some uh, mon- monopoly. Agreed. Were there any events or announcements in the past, you know, couple years in the healthcare space or blockchain space that was unexpected to you or surprising? Uh, you know, not really. Uh, that's unfortunate, but I, I really haven't seen any really interesting traction in the space. I think I've seen several failures, which were more disappointing. You know, people either deciding to get out of the space or unsuccessful, you know, ICOs or token raises or uh, ventures. So I, I would say nothing real surprising. I think some of the canned uh, predictions, like where companies would start experimenting, came to fruition, like credentialing, you know, or provider directories and things like that. That was kind of you know easily anticipated. Uh, I've seen nothing very provocative yet, but I, I'm confident we will see something provocative. Sure, and there's been a few like acquisitions that I thought was pretty interesting in the space, um, such as uh, Polkadoc or Pocadoc. Oh yeah, I've seen. Um, so they sold some technology, I, I think, to change healthcare. 
Um, and, and, and that was fine. Um, I, I think also there's been some acquire hires. I think um, uh, some company bought Better Path or something or Better Health or something. Yeah, uh, that's right. That um, company, Humanity.co. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that was an acquire hire. They hadn't made much traction, uh, and it wasn't. These are not large acquisitions. Mm-hmm. These are acquisitions. You know, I'd be surprised if they're more than a couple million bucks uh, at most. It's really just a plug-in. Um, it's a way to uh, grow. A, you know, instead of having two people go two different paths or two organizations, it's a way to combine yeah. forces and. Uh, That's right. Share the knowledge and wealth. Yeah. And, and we're going to do the same thing with this, uh, with a joint venture or two. We're going to, uh, we think that's the smart way to go. Mm-hmm. And some people can bring um, customers uh, or potential communities, in our case, to the table. Some people will bring some technology that will complement what we're building to the, uh, to the party. And some people will bring capital. And, uh, you know, so it's different. Uh, people can bring different value to the, uh, to the vision. Right. What's your outlook for 2019 and uh, even beyond that? I think you're going to see more networks go into uh, production. I think you're going to see more main nets going live. I think that's great. And, and that could be the beginning of the next uh, bull market or bull run. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see what Ethereum ultimately does and whether they can really uh, have a more performant network. Mm-hmm. Because right now, layer one is just uh, not performant enough, really, for, for most applications. Right. And so I know their focus is going to be more on layer two and having more sidechain type of technologies for scaling. It'll be interesting to see you know, how that gets rolled out and whether they move to proof of stake, you know, how that improves layer one settlement times. Um, so I, I think that's that will be interesting to see, you know, what gets accomplished in that important ecosystem. And not that it's going to be the only ecosystems. I think there's going to be many winners out there. That will be one of them, I believe. Um, but it's, it's not an all or nothing. It's not one or one and done sort of out there. It's going to be lots of different um, uh, networks that have different uh, characteristics and solve different problems, uh, and in combination, uh, they will uh, be a part of the, the broader ecosystem. Ultimately, creating trust in the ecosystem, and that's I think the ultimate goal ultimately. for all mm-hmm. these um, projects. Do you have a favorite project or crypto blockchain uh, you want to share? Oh, I want to share. Um, a new one I just bumped into is Nero. N-E-R-O. And that's something to look at because what they're doing is they're, they took a Monero derivative as well, but they took it in a different direction. They built um, uh, the underlying block structure is a DAG. Uh, and, and, and so their performance is uh, very much high speed. What is a DAG for the it, audience? It's a directed acrylic graph. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a different type of data structure, basically. Uh, than a blockchain or traditional blockchain. And so that speed things up. And also they kept the, the privacy layer piece, which is important. And they also added a smart contract system to it. It's a very, it, very few people know about it. Um, it's, you know, oh, I know there are several. Ex- yeah, I, I, I just stumbled upon it a couple of weeks ago. And I thought that was kind of the most novel because it's all layer one. So they have the performance gains in layer one versus relying on side chains. I think that's kind of interesting. I got some fire questions for you. Um, okay. What is the most important technology in the past 500 years? <laughs> blockchain. Um, <laughs> I think blockchain is one of the most elegant, uh, simplistic um, innovations I've seen in a long time. But at the end of the day, I, I, I think the internet, um, many types of other innovations, including uh, blockchain, uh, wouldn't be possible unless there was electricity. At sure. the end of the day, electricity is kind of, you know, it's the beginning. You know, everything's built upon that. So in my view, that gets my vote is electricity. And it's crazy how fast um, we've been able to harness electricity and then move forward into building computers and then the internet. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. When so, I grew up, I didn't have, when I was really young, I didn't have the internet. I barely had a computer, but now, you know, I got a amazing computer in my pocket. So uh, awesome. it's pretty amazing. Next what do you question. have? Are you an Android or an I, Apple? I have an Android. Yeah, I actually have both. I have a work phone that's iOS. So I use got both. <laughs> what about you? Both. I have one for testing and uh Which iPhones. one do you prefer? My personal is Android. Uh, my personal is iPhone. Uh, iPhone, I yeah. think, is my preference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next question. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you choose to have it implanted? Oh, God. Where would I choose to have it implanted? Somewhere safe. <laughs> somewhere where it's not going to uh, create a problem for me in mm-hmm. my body and somewhere where it's hidden. Yeah, there's a bunch of people getting implants in their hand, like in between their thumb and um, index finger, like right in between that like skin area. Oh, I think that's interesting because it's very open and people can definitely um, maybe you take your hand and move it somewhere and it'll pick up the RFID tag. Um, but it's also easy. It's convenient. If you want to open a door, boom, you could just like stick ah, it in interesting. So I don't know. I don't know. It depends on what it'll be used for. I, guess. I worry about infection and things like that. You know, like what, what are the potential collateral problems? Apparently it's pretty safe. Uh, you know, people have been microchipping pets for a long time now. So animals oh. and that's been safe. So yeah, we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> uh, last question is what, is the most impactful book that you've read? Mm. A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Hmm. Okay. It's really uh, influenced my life, and uh, I highly recommend it for everyone to read. Um, it's changed my way of living. So. Wow, it's interesting. Being in the present it, so moment. I'm check that one out. Um. Now, Cyrus, this has been an awesome conversation. Is there anything else you want to add or things I missed that you want to talk about? No, I think you did a great job and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Cool. How can people get in touch with the company if they want to get involved with HCX? Pay. HCXpay.io. Pay.io. Okay. Yeah. That's how you find us. I'll make sure I'll put that in the show notes for everybody to check out. Oh, Awesome. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.